0: book we don't go to often, Ezekiel chapter 28. If you start there, this is where we're going to start here tonight. It certainly is wonderful to see a good crowd again tonight. Thank you for coming. I certainly appreciate it. Certainly want to welcome live stream as well. And of course, live stream, always encourage them to get off the couch, get in a hard chair and get some coffee. Okay. So anyway, they'll be ready to go. Uh, It's good to see you tonight. Boy, that was good quartet. I think most of those guys have what they call perfect pitch. You guys know what perfect pitch is. A few people in life are blessed with perfect pitch. I'm not sure if it is you're born with it or it's acquired. I don't know. I just know I don't have it. Uh, But anyway, I, uh, at least one or two of my daughters I uh, think some of them have relative pitch I think one has perfect pitch. When they are a little girl we'd hear the dinging you know the car doors open ding 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 and I'd turn to that daughter and say what note is that? She'd tell me what note it was. Uh, that's crazy to me I don't uh, I don't get that but some of you out there and of course I think most of this group had a couple of them had to have perfect pitch to keep that thing on and maybe one or two of them had relative pitch I don't know but they did a great job. That was certainly a blessing and uh, if you don't know this singing without an instrument, singing a capella that's hard that's not easy so that took a little bit uh, took some skill of course uh, for that was pretty much an all-star team anyway so except for jonathan gilmore he sneaked in somehow but anyway <laughs> that was a great all-star team okay good uh but anyway uh jonathan traveled with me and of course is my nephew so um i all mean that in good fun but um we're gonna deal tonight with another one of the hot potatoes maybe we should have just called this the hot potato series and um, Uh, just kind of deal with some of those issues that are a little bit more, um, um, you know, ones that uh, sometimes we uh, as preachers kind of fear to tread there because uh, we know sometimes there's a little resistance or kickback, like don't touch my music or, hey man, don't go in my closet or, hey, leave my media choices alone, that kind of thing. And so we've tried to stay real close to the Word of God and let God's Word speak to us and make application. And obviously, last night uh, we made some application out of the life of Lot, and God gave us four words to describe the media choices Lot made. And I think we can all learn: boy, better stay away from those four things. And uh, hopefully, that encouraged you. We saw what happened to the man Lot as a result of poor media choices, and obviously, his family was devastated as well. So certainly, uh, certainly, in our day, a lot of uh, application come out of the man Lot. But let's go to music here tonight. Now, uh, let me just say this to you, briefly boys out here. I just want to settle it. I know my last name is Van Gelderen, but the music gene missed me. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you think those Van Gelderen uh, people, they all play an instrument, not this one. Okay, I play the radio. I tried to do the trumpet, totally crashed and burned. Tried to do the piano a few, of three years. My wife, uh, my wife, my mother let me quit. Of course, if you'd have heard me play, you'd have let me quit too. Okay, so, um, uh, so I'm just saying the music gene kind of missed me. So you say, What in the world are you doing preaching on music? Well, I'm telling you something, friends. I want all you unmusical BCM students, all three of you, all the <laughs> unmusical BCM students. Uh, don't feel bad about it, okay, you got a vice president who's with you on this deal, okay, so some of you coming in here already intimidated about the fact you don't play a violin, okay, that's all right, Uh, I'll I'll hang with you, okay, we'll just hang together on the deal, Uh, but but all you non-musical preacher boys, I want to tell you something, you can still preach on music, you say why, because it's in the Bible. And so we're going to just walk through the Word of God on this uh, particular topic. And I want to deal with some things here tonight. Uh, uh, We'll try to make some application. We're going to primarily deal with the Christian side of music, but obviously you can make a lot of these same applications to secular music choices as well. But uh, for Christians, largely the Christian music arena is far more where we find ourselves making uh, choices. Now, in a moment we're going to deal with this, but I want to throw something out. How many have ever heard uh, this particular position? There are a certain group of people today who believe that music is amoral. Now, when I say that statement, music is amoral, which I don't believe, in a moment we're going to deal with that, how many have ever heard that? Can I see your hands, please? Or you're aware of that position? Okay? There's a large sector of evangelicalism that would pre, and even now in independent Baptist fundamentalism, there are people who believe that music is amoral, which means that uh, barring association issues and lyrical issues, the music itself, uh, is, um, is not, uh, is amoral. It, it, in other words, you could take the music of the worst rock band you've ever heard, strip away the lyrics, take it halfway around the world where they never heard it, and you could play it without the lyrics, and it would be okay. That's the position, which I don't believe is true. But uh, there are people who believe that, and, uh, and again, uh, actually a growing number. I believe music is moral. Now, if music is moral, do you know what that means? It mandates discernment. If you can have good music and you can have bad music, you know what? We, not, we better be discerning then because we want to discern what's good and what's not good. But if music is immoral, moral, you don't need any discernment. Except maybe discernment on association or lyrical content. But the music itself would just be everything's fair game. But if music is moral, it mandates discernment. That's what I want us to investigate tonight uh, somewhat as we go through that. I kind of lay that out there because that's a very, very important. Listen, in this room we may have disagreements where we draw the line, but I'm hoping nobody in this room would walk away and think, hey, music's amoral. You take away association, take away lyrics, the music itself is amoral. I hope nobody in this room takes that position. And the interesting thing is that's not true. And in fact, there was a guy, to kind of give you an idea, uh, who one day walked over to the piano and he was one of these music is amoral guys, and he hit a note. I don't know, middle C, whatever note, and he, came, came, he banged on it, and then he said to the audience, he said, is that an evil note or is that a good note? And everybody laughed. And his point was, see, music is amoral. Well, that's a very poor argument. You know why? A note is not music. It's a building block in creating music. Now, is a letter amoral? Well, a letter would be, generally speaking, a letter is going to be amoral, A, B, C, D. But if you start to arrange those letters in words and sentences and create literature, does the literature have moral value? In other words, could it be good literature or could it be evil literature? And the answer is absolutely. Nobody out here would debate that literature is amoral unless you were a moron. You know what I'm talking about? Because it didn't take very much genius to read certain things and saying, that's inappropriate, that's bad. Now, is a line or a curve or a color uh, have moral value? And the answer is, well, largely not. But if you start putting lines, which are building blocks, and curves and color together, you create art. Got a question for you. Can art be evil? And the answer is, absolutely. Can art be good? Absolutely. See, in no other one of the fine arts are there people arguing. Nobody's arguing that art is moral. Nobody's arguing that literature is moral, But people are arguing that music is moral. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that doesn't make sense. So as we get into this, that's, that's where the battle line is. We're going to deal with other things. But I want you to understand how important that is. When we get to a certain part uh, of the message, I'll remind you that there's a certain text of Scripture that I think helps us understand that music has moral value. And if it does, every one of us in this room then needs to be careful and need discernment. Lord, we don't want to listen to music that's not helpful. Now I've got another question for you. Okay, now obviously you can mix good and bad. I think we all understand that. You could have inappropriate music and you could have good text. Couldn't you? Yeah, sure you could. In fact, it's interesting. When Satan came to Jesus, what was his text? (laughs) And the answer is the Bible. (laughs) What was the problem then? Context. In other words, the very context twisted the Scripture, and of course Jesus corrected that. So you could have correct text because Satan had Bible text, but he had wrong context. And as a result, it was called temptation. So the same thing can happen in music. You can have good text, and you can have an inappropriate context, and obviously it warps the text. So so these are things that are important. So so when it comes to music, you can have good elements and bad elements that mix. Now i got a question for you. If you have 95% of evil and 5% good, is that hard to detect? And the answer is probably not. Probably most of you could get that one. Let's imagine you had 50% good and 50% evil. Would that be a little harder to detect And the answer is? Yeah, that would be a little more challenging. See, the more mixture of, of evil in or, or sin, we could say, into a musical choice, uh, the more it's obvious. The less it's probably is not as obvious. And so that's, that's what makes music uh, challenging. Because sometimes Satan's not dumb. He'll mix mix in 5% error, then he'll mix in 15, then he'll mix in 25, then he'll mix in 50. You get the idea. And so, in musical choices, it mandates discernment. Now, let me just simply help you out because I'm just trying to lay a foundation here. You say, now that, is that in the Bible? Okay, now, let's think about this for a moment. Peter, would you call Peter a good guy or a bad guy? And the answer is both. You say, what are you talking about? Well, remember one day uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples and said, who do men say that I am? And you know what Peter did? He spoke up, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you and I are saying, go for it, Peter. Man, you got that one. And you know what Jesus said? Flesh and blood didn't reveal that. But my Father which is in heaven, wow! Well, he commended Peter. Now, if you read the Synoptic Gospels, you know what happens next? He's saying to Peter, get thee behind me. Anybody know? Wow. And the same human being, the, God the Father, was doing a work in, in uh, Peter's life, and so was the enemy. Now, the old-timers, particularly a lady by the name of Jesse Penn Lewis who wrote the, the uh, book War on the Saints, they called that dual streams. Now, I believe in a certain sense all of us at some degree, obviously as you mature, this can be diminished, but uh, all of us are dual streams. You have a stream of flesh that Satan, of course, operates in, and you have a stream of spirit. Have you ever gotten irritated at your spouse? Was that the God stream or the flesh stream? You know, it's amazing, friends. Just like Peter, one time we can be using the God stream, another moment where in the next moment we're using the flesh stream, and Satan's working on through that thing. So, uh, now if that can occur in a human being, an apostle like Peter, we certainly recognize the potential. Listen, let me just say this. Wherever God's working, many times Satan's trying to get in. And so we got to be careful. That's why I'm simply saying it mandates discernment. So if you get that, coming into this and that will help us understand something. So what I want us to do first of all is I want to talk about the enemy because obviously he is a key part of trying to deceive us when it comes to the issue of music. So we're going to start at Ezekiel 28. I want you to go down to verse number 13. And he, uh, if you know anything here that Ezekiel the prophet is talking about the king of Tyre. And uh, in this particular, some of the prophetic situations, there's a human king in view, and then uh, the prophet goes beyond the human king to the satanic influence behind the human king. That's what you find here. It's pretty clear in verse number 13. So he's talking to the king of Tyrus, and then he says, verse 13, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. I got a question for you. Was Tyrus in the garden of Eden? And the answer is no. So he's not talking about him. He's moved beyond him. Just like when Jesus said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. He went to the influence behind. That's what's going on here. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and thy pipes was created in thee in the day thou wast created. Now, all I want to see something, I want to stop for a moment. Now, there were three beings, there were three kind of beings, there were four total, but there were three kind of beings in the Garden of Eden. There was, number one, a divine being. Anybody want to tell me what his name is? That's God. Okay. Then you had two human beings, okay, and that was Adam and Eve. Okay, and then we had an angelic being, and that was, of course... Satan? Okay, now, so when uh, the Bible's talking about here, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, it's either got to be a human being, it's either got to be a divine being, or it's got to be this fallen angelic being. So which one is it? Well, th- look at verse number 14, and it tips, it tips the hat, so to speak. It says, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. So who is this? that he is addressing in the uh, the Garden of Eden? And the answer is, it's Satan. Notice what he said. In the day thou wast created, uh, there was these uh, tabrets and the pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Now, all I want us to see, I don't want to get too technical here is this. Now, he wasn't called Satan when he was created, but when the Son of Morning, that angelic cherub who became Satan was created, he was created with musical ability. Do you agree with that? Yeah, that's what the Bible's saying here. So, this cherub that was created was created with musical ability. That's all I want you to take from Ezekiel 28, but I wanted to be clear about it. Now, go to Isaiah 14. Go to Isaiah 14, and we find a very similar situation where a human king is being addressed, and then the prophet goes beyond the human king to the, the uh, demonic or the satanic, I should say, uh, influence behind. Okay, so let's go uh, to verse number. 11. Okay, he's talking to this human king, and, and you're going to see a transition here. He says, Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread unto thee, and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven? Here it is, O Lucifer, son of the morning. So, who's being addressed here? And the answer is, Yeah, it's going to be Satan, right here, Lucifer. Now, I want you to note something here. He said uh, in verse number 11, uh, he says, thy pop is brought down to the grave. Now that is the Hebrew word sheol. The word, Hebrew word sheol has multiple definitions. It has the idea of afterlife. It sometimes is pra- tra- translated grave like here, and sometimes it is gra- uh, the idea is cha- it's translated as hell. So I've got a question for you. Clearly, thy pomp is brought down to the grave and the noise of the vial. So I want you to understand this. When Satan is thrown into the bottomless pit, when it's finally all over, I want you to notice something. The Bible says his music's going with him. Now, it's very interesting, noise of vials. I don't want to get too technical on the language, but a vial is what kind of instrument? It's a stringed instrument. And the word noise is what we would use if we were in a crowd and heard just people talking. A din would be the idea of noise. It'd be waves crashing against the sea. It'd be a crowded room or a stadium with a bunch of people cheering. It's disorganized sound. I'm not trying to be technical. That's what the, the idea of the word is. So what God is simply saying at the, uh, when the end of, of Satan's uh, work here on earth, when he is thrown into the bottomless pit, his music's going with him. So all I want you to see is, we see his music at the beginning, and we see his music at the end. So could we say then, that Satan is a musical being? And the answer is, Yes, biblically you can say that. That's what the Bible's helping us see here. Now that's all I want you to take from it. I don't want to get too technical. My, my points were just to throw a few things out there to make you th- think. Now let's go to a little bit of understanding of Satan's ministry, if we can use that in a very negative way. Okay, Satan has a ministry, and his ministry is evil. Now there's three kinds of people that Satan wants to influence. Number one, people going to hell. Now, I want to ask you a question. You think Satan has been pretty good at blinding people's eyes who are headed to hell? And the answer is, well, sure, he's pretty good at that. So, I want you to see, he goes after lost people, he goes after saved people who are not right with God, and he goes after saved people who are right with God. Now, I want you to see this, that his strategy is different with each one. His strategy with unsaved people is this, and the God of this world hath blinded the mind's of them that believe not, lest the glorious glorious gospel should shine unto them. So what does he try to do with lost people? Blind their minds. So my my, my basically is not going to deal with that. What does he try to do to what we might call the backslidden Christian or the carnal man? 2 Timothy 2.26 says, And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. In Romans chapter number 7 the, uh, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul in his defeat says, I am carnal, sold unto sin. So the second thing I want you to understand, he takes carnal or backslidden Christians and he ensnares them. So unsaved people he blinds, saved people not right with God he ensnares. Now I want to ask you, do you think he goes after spiritual Christians or Christians who are walking with God? Do you think so? Sure he does. Now, what strategy do you use with them? Again, you don't term for time, but in 2 Corinthians 11, the Bible says, and no marvel, for even Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So you know what Satan tries to do with spiritual people? He counterfeits God. See, spiritual people are spirit, certainly not going to fall. I mean, if the devil comes to them outright, they're not going to go for that. They don't want to do what the devil wants them to do. So what does he do? He counterfeits Now, I think we understand that that's a very, there's other wiles of the devil, but that's one of his big ones that he tries to do, particularly, I believe, with believers who are walking with him, because they have a heart for God. And so Satan knows the only way I'm going to get them to fall is to act like I'm a messenger of God when he's the prince of darkness. Now, with that understanding, if you put all these things together, I've got a question. Is it possible... Satan obviously has musical ability. He's a master counterfeiter. Is it possible that Satan could then create a music that he packaged as Christian when it actually had elements of darkness? Is that possible? And the answer is: it's not possible, it's probable. (laughs) Because the deceiver is a counterfeiter. And he wants to deceive good people. So it's good, it's certainly probable that he is going to package a music as Christian when it's actually not. And again, some of the, some, the Christian music may have more elements of, of, of darkness in it than others. There's no doubt again, that some is easier to discern than others. And some takes a lot of fine tooth uh, discernment. It really does. I remember years ago, I won't say what I was listening to, it certainly was not wild or out there, but it was some of the cutting edge Christian uh, independent Baptist music of the day. And and I remember I was listening to it. I really enjoyed it, liked it. I was in college and my mom, I don't know how to explain it. I mentioned she had the gift of stewing, but I mean sometimes she could just, just be troubled. She was troubled. And I said, well, mom, what's wrong with it? And I'll never forget my mother's answer and it's really not a bad answer. She said, I don't know, but I'm troubled by it. You know what, I, I think that's not a bad answer. And you know, for somebody who's walking with God, I'm going to listen up and think, well, you know, I better think about this, particularly my own mother. So um, let's, let's then think, how, how in the world then, if, if music, obviously, uh, Satan can package it, and he can package it as a counterfeit Christian and and put elements of darkness in it and packaging it like it's music of light when it's not, uh, or elements of darkness in it. How in the world can we discern? And the answer is, and the answer is the Word of God. See, the Word of God's the flashlight. The one thing about the devil is he is a masquerader and he tries to act like he's a messenger of light but there's always darkness shining through. See, this is how you tell the difference between the the counterfeiter and God. God is light, and in Him is no darkness, and He adds two more words, at all. When God's on something, no darkness. When Satan's counterfeiting, there's always darkness. Somewhere. There is darkness. I've used this illustration before here. I hesitate to use it. But all the baby boomers will never forget it if I use it. But um, back when I was a kid, I hate to admit this, especially after presenting the lecture here last night or the message last night on media, but I used to watch a cartoon called Roadrunner. Yeah, Road Runner. How many remember Road Runner? You'll commiserate with me. Yes, Road Runner. You're playing the song right now. If he gets you, you know, you're through, etc. Okay, you're, the rest of the, the night you'll probably be singing that little song. Okay, now this, the, the cartoon was extremely meaningless. Okay, you know, <laughs> had no value as far as edification, but we kids just got sucked into the deal because we're always wondering, is he ever gonna get the bird? Okay, you know what I'm talking about, uh, Road Runner. Is he ever gonna get him? And I remember uh, that. Uh, Uh, Wiley Coyote, in that interesting name, Wiley Coyote. I think got it from Ephesians chapter number six. Warner Brothers did. Okay, but anyway, Wiley Coyote. uh, They, um, uh, he uh, always bought his little gizmos from Amazon. I mean, acme.com. Okay, and he'd go out there and he'd order stuff. And I remember all kinds of different. He's a kid, you know. He's fascinated. You know what's going to happen. And of course, Wiley Coyote, it always went backfired on him. But one time, I remember he ordered a sheep's clothing from the acme. And he dressed up like the sheep, you know, and he comes out there. And I remember even as a little kid, clueless, I'm looking at there and thinking, no, nope, not going to work. There's too much coyote showing. Now, friends, I don't want you to miss this. There's one thing you can all, I can always tell you about the devil. You don't have to fear the deception of the enemy if you have the light of the word of God because there's always too much darkness showing. See, God's light, there's no darkness at all so he's a counterfeiter and he's certainly going to try to counterfeit music but the problem is there's going to be darkness and some greater darkness than others so you say okay preacher you said the word of God shines the light on it could you give me some passages well there's several and I certainly can't be conclusive tonight I mean you know, do everyone but I can simply give you a couple of them and a help to me how about John four twenty four? Won't go into the context that most of you know, woman at the well, and they're talking about worship. And here's what Jesus says. Um, Here we just slipped out God. Oh, there it is. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him. Help me out now. In and in. Did you notice there's two tests? So when it comes to genuine Christian music, there are going to be two tests that will have to be passed. Number one, the spirit test. Now, I want to point out something that hopefully will be a real help to us. Is there another passage of Scripture that talks about music in the Bible that uses that concept of spirit or spiritual? Well, if you know much about the Bible, you're thinking about Ephesians chapter 5. When it talks about being filled with the Spirit, you have five participles that hinge off that main verb, filled with the Spirit. And the first one is speaking to yourselves. In Psalms and hymns and, anybody know the Spiritual songs. Spiritual songs. Now, when it comes to a part of speech, what part of speech is the word spiritual? Now, songs, I'm going to give you a clue, is a noun. And the word before it, spiritual, is anybody just some (laughs) adjective? Wow, unbelievable, they got it. Adjective. Now, what do adjectives do? Adjectives, in a certain sense, we could say this, they limit the noun. If the noun's too broad, you've got to limit it. And so, like, for instance, if uh, Pastor Van was up here and a deacon came up and put the little thing here and said, you know, we've got a car that left its lights on. You might want to go on and turn them off. You know, that would be kind of confusing. You know what I'm talking about? Like, which car? If he said, the blue car, well, that helps a little bit, but we might lose a third of the auditorium. If he says, the blue car... The Dodge or the whatever, and you said whatever make it is, well, that limits it some more. If he says the blue rusty car that's about to fall apart, only one person's leaving, that Bible college student will head out there and uh, he'll go, he'll turn the headlights off. Okay, see, the more adjectives you put on the noun, you know this, it limits the noun. So you wouldn't put an adjective on unless it's needed. Now, if I was preaching tonight, and I said, now, listen, folks, I said, if you go down to the uh, room here and get some cold water, I said, what you need to do is get some cold ice. Would you find that to be a little odd if I started talking about cold ice? You say, well, preacher, you don't really need to use the adjective cold because uh, it's uh, ice is cold. All ice is cold. Have you ever heard of hot ice? Now, don't miss this. See, if if you say cold ice, it demands the existence of hot ice. Well, there's no such thing as hot ice, so you don't say cold ice. You just say, hang on, ice. Okay, let me give you another illustration. Let's imagine that I uh, said uh, to the auditorium here tonight, uh, we're going to repaint the auditorium. This would not be a good idea, but anyway, we're going to repaint the auditorium, and uh, we're going to paint it dark pastel." You say, preacher, that's impossible. You can't do that because pastel's not dark. If, on the other hand, I said, hey, let's paint the walls light pastel, that wouldn't actually be appropriate either because light pastel demands the existence of dark pastel, and there is no dark pastel. So what would we say? Pastel. That's it. That's all we'd have to say. Okay, so when the Bible says spiritual songs, guess what it demands? It demands the existence of the opposites or things that are not spiritual. I can think of two categories the Bible makes very clear are completely different than something that's spiritual. The first one is an opposite. The opposite of spiritual in the Bible, if you got your Bible out and you got your Strong's Concordance or you got your Bible program and you put in the word spiritual and started looking up all the different passages and started looking for opposites, you would find the words carnal. Or flesh, or carnally, which are pretty much all the same thing. You'd find that is as opposites. So it's the Greek word sarx. Now, the Greek word sarx uh, has multiple definitions. The spirit indeed is willing, but the Flesh or the sarks is weak. That's talking about the human frame. That's talking about our humanness. Okay, but there's other times the flesh has a very evil or negative uh, kind of feel to it. How about this one? The works of the flesh, there's our word, the works of sarks, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these: adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Whoa. That sounds kind of bad. So the word flesh obviously One of the nuances of it that particularly is, I believe, in in view here is we could call it sensual. It's the opposite of spiritual. In fact, you even find this particular word in another passage in Romans chapter 6 when it talks about that downward pull, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness. Now, into the epistles, the word uncleanness is no longer like leprosy. It's not ceremonial uncleanness. In the epistles, in almost every single time you find it, uncleanness is talking about immoral uncleanness talking about that uh, uncleanness that comes in the realm of morality. Okay, so there's definitely some understanding that the word flesh can be the idea of sensual. So when God's talking about spiritual songs, he's saying this, hey listen, I want you to have spiritual songs, which means I don't want you to have fleshly or sensual songs. Now you say, okay, come on preacher, it's your opinion against mine. You think that song, that melody or that that particular uh, arrangement is sensual or fleshly, I don't see it that way. Isn't it just subjective? I mean, isn't it my opinion versus your opinion? Well, let me stop for a moment and ask you this question. Because a couple nights ago, we dealt with the situation of becoming desensitized. And we talked about the fact, when it comes to sensuality in the realm that we live in, it's possible to become desensitized. We talked about Ted Bundy, some of you remember that. And we talked about the fact that the night before he executed, he mentioned to James Dobson that he had become extremely desensitized to that which is extremely inappropriate and provocative but he had seen so much of it and gone so deep in it, he had become desensitized. We also talked about the fact if that we could transport from a time machine in from Puritan, New England, a 14-year-old boy, that that boy would not be desensitized at all. And if there was any level of immodesty at all, it would be a problem to his thought life. And nobody debated that. We see the possibility of becoming desensitized with the eye. I got a question. If you can come be desensitized with visual sensuality, do you think it's possible you could become desensitized with audio sensuality? (laughs) Absolutely. Now let me illustrate it this way. Back when I was a kid in our Christian school... We had a, a principal, he had a very interesting last name. His name was Walgamot, okay, so I remember, and we called him Uncle Walkie. And uh, he had a big, a big fur, a, a curly hair, and um, uh, he has a, just an outgoing personality, everybody loved him. And, uh, but anyway, he had a little girl that best, I mean, she, she was like Shirley Temple, you know, little just curls and the personality to go with it. And she, I remember one day he was preaching in chapel, and this was back in the days of the 70s. You remember the stereos back in the 70s, you know, the big speakers in the corners and the turntable and all that, and the cassette tapes, of course. And uh, everybody, every house seemed to have the big stereos. That was the deal. And, and he had that stereo, and, and they, were, uh, they were doing something, and I can't remember. Somehow the stereo accidentally turned to a radio station. And the radio station was... Uh, just a full-blown, just kind of pop music of the day. And he said, that little girl of his, who was about three years old, danced a jig across that living room that he said was her body movements were extremely sensual and provocative. He said, as far as I know, she had never moved that way in her entire life. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think that it would be possible for us to say that's sensual music? Absolutely. So if we took John Philip Sousa and we brought into a classroom of elementary school kids and we said okay just do what the music tells you to what to do, to do. what are those elementary kids going to do They're going to march why cuz the music tells them to march so when people say it's just your opinion versus mine I think it's it's not that's a cop out Because if you take blank slates, little three-year-old kids, and turn on the music, and their body movements are inappropriate and sensual, then I'm telling you right now, if they've never been taught that, the music is telling them to gyrate that way. And that kind of music would not be a proper venue for a spiritual message. Agreed? See, when God's talking about spiritual songs, he said, I'm not talking about sensual songs. He wouldn't have used the adjective if he didn't mean to tell us something. He said, I'm talking about spiritual. I'm not talking about fleshly or carnal or sensual. It's very important for us to understand that. And I don't think many people would argue the fact that uh, the morals of the United States of America have seemed to greatly diminish with the bringing in of certain musical styles. And I think most of us understand there's certain music when you see a crowd And they're dancing, there's certain music where the dancing movements are so inappropriate and provocative it would be wrong to keep watching. Now we get that, we understand that. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because I think most of us understand that that kind of music would certainly not in any way be an appropriate venue for spiritual, uh, for something spiritual. So, but I do want to give a biblical ans- uh, biblical illustration. You remember last night or two nights ago? When I guess it was last night, I dealt with the the Bible's first television addict. Now the Bible's got a lot of first things. A, a lot was the Bible's first television addict. Jehoshaphat was the Bible's first new evangelical. If you don't know what that word means, ask Dr. Himes. The Brother Himes, he'll tell you. Okay, but anyway, yeah, the Bible's got a lot of firsts. And you know the Bible also has the first contemporary Christian concert. Did you know that? It's found in Exodus 32. Don't turn there for time. But Exodus 32, guess what happened? Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And there's some very interesting things that began to happen. They obviously fashioned a molten calf. And you say, oh, preacher, here they are. They're going into paganism. Actually, I don't believe they were going into paganism because they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt? And the answer is, well, Jehovah God. Now, you may know that the word gods is the translation of the word Elohim. In other words, I believe what they're saying. And I can tell you for sure, in Nehemiah 9, verse 18, where uh, Nehemiah was referring back to this incident, he says these words, he translates it this way, Yea, when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee out uh, out of Egypt and wrought great provocations. In that particular passage, God is being preceded by a singular demonstrative pronoun. In other words, Nehemiah was saying just singular, and of course in Exodus it's saying plural. Now you can do that. See, the Trinity, sometimes that's uh, obviously the, 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 was the, the word Elohim helped us at the very beginning understand the Trinity, but here... Uh, Nehemiah is clearly helping us understand. It's not talking about false gods, pagan gods. It was talking about Jehovah God. Now, if that doesn't convince you, uh, in uh, Exodus 32, 5, this verse, and when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. It's the word for Yahweh. Now, I want you to understand that what the people were doing there was in their thinking, Jehovah Elohim worship. This was all about God. This is the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, they disobeyed God and made a calf, golden calf. But I want you to see it was Jehovah worship. And could we say it this way? The words were right. The text was okay, in a sense, we could say that. Now, I think we need to recognize there's something else that's going on here, and that is the music is sensual. Now, how do we know the music is sensual? Okay, we first of all recognize when they were up there, Joshua said to Moses, hey, I hear the voice of them that sing. Do I hear? So it's clearly music. Then secondly, the Bible says when Moses and Joshua came down off the mount, they saw two things. They saw, and then when they saw them, Moses took the the, uh, tablets uh, the, uh, that Jesus, uh, that God had written the Ten Commandments on, and he threw them down and he broke them. Most of you know that. God never rebuked him for that, by the way. But there's two things that he saw. He, number one, saw the calf, and number two, he saw dancing. You dance to music. Okay, so you got music, you got dancing. We also find there was immodesty because the Bible says in verse number 25, Moses saw that the people were naked, and that is, is really... Ill-clad is it's the idea there. Uh, it certainly was extremely inappropriate like we talked about the other night. For Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies. So I think we very clearly can understand there was music and there was sensuality. Now it's interesting in the New Testament there is commentary from the Apostle Paul on this event that is Stunning and it helps us understand exactly what's happening. For time, don't turn there, but 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 7 says this. It says, neither be ye idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people made a golden image. Does anybody know that passage? Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. In other words, the Bible had said, hey, these folks were idolaters, and they made a golden image, and He didn't say that. Here's what it said. Neither be idolaters as some of them. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink. And here it is, rose up to play. And that's where the sensuality began. Now, isn't it interesting? You say, well, preacher, what's idolatrous about that? They ate, they drank, they rose up to play. Well, if you have to understand the Old Testament, when they rose up to play, don't miss this, it was, how do I say this, sensual worship. Now, was God really thrilled about sensual worship, the Jehovah God? Was He thrilled about that? No, it was a big deal. Here's what He called it idolatry. When you mix sensuality into Jehovah God worship, it in God's sight is idolatry. You can say you're having a feast to Jehovah. You can say this is the God that brought us up out of the land of Egypt. You can say the right words. But if you're mixing Jehovah God worship with sensuality, the New Testament makes it clear it's idolatry. Because honestly today some people say, well, what's the big deal? Well, it sounds to me like it's a big deal. If you're using music that literally would be sensual, and cause body movements that are inappropriate and blank slate three-year-olds, which means that's the kind of music it is. God says that's an inappropriate venue to worship me with. And I want you to, some of you millennials out here and Gen Zers who unfortunately get way too influenced by this culture, you need to wake up and smell the coffee. Because some of you are going to mix sensuality with Jehovah worship because you don't have a brain between your ears. I'm not trying to be unkind, I'm trying to wake you up. So this is uh, an important... Yeah, you can be sincere. I'm not saying that there weren't people who are sincere. And I'm not saying there aren't people who uh, uh, wanted to, okay, this is God. I'm just saying they were wrong. And God called it idolatry and it was a big deal. So that helps us understand that. Now that brings us to another nuance. Okay, you still with me? Hanging with me? Okay, here it is. Okay, so the first difference we saw was very clearly that spiritual songs are not carnal songs. But there's another distinction in the Bible between spiritual and something else. Do you know what it is? For the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder between uh, the joints and marrow and the, 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 uh, the soul and the spirit. I didn't say that exactly right, Uh, anyway, uh, but you you understand the verse. Okay, so the Bible says it makes a distinction between soul and spirit. Now don't miss this, if it's spirit it's not soul, and if it's soul it's not spirit. Now understand that soul is not always wrong. soul of course is kind of your, 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 your emotions, your will, it's, it's, you know, it's your perimeter, it's, it's who you are, your spirit is deeper than that, that's what got regenerated the moment you got saved, but you got this perimeter with your emotion, your mind, your will, all these things, that's the soul. Now here's what God is saying, soul is not spirit and spirit is not soul, and if you give a mixed up, that's not going to be good. See, when, when you have worship it needs to be spiritual. Now, does spiritual music and spiritual message affect the soul? And the answer is sure it does. You ever heard a song that just stirred your heart? You got just stirred, man, hallelujah, I'm saved. Maybe a chill went down your spine, and you're thinking, hallelujah, I'm saved. But you see, that what starts in the spirit does affect the soul. But they're different. Now don't miss this. What affects the soul, generally speaking, does not affect the spirit. In other words, if it affects the perimeter. And that's what it's targeted to. There can be emotion. There can be, you know, tingly feelings. There can be all kinds of things. And it's not necessarily spiritual. How about this? Have you ever been watching some one of those touchy-feely type um, movies? I guess I should say films to be consistent here, you know. And uh, you start crying. And you play a certain, you know, music. And it just makes you cry. Now, I'm going to use an illustration, and I recognize that this particular movie is, is it's back in the 80s, but I, I remember one rainy Saturday afternoon, 1985, my sister-in-law, who was, I think, a freshman in high school at the time, she said, I've rented a couple of videos down from the library. She said, Jim, would you watch it? I said, what's the name of it? She said, it's Anna Green Gables. You've got to watch it. It's a great movie. I didn't have anything to do that afternoon. I was young at the time. And I thought, yeah, I'll watch that thing. Now, I'm not, this is not, how do I say this? I am not promoting it at Green Gables, okay. Okay, I'm just using an illustration, okay. So I sat down with my sister-in-law and I watched that three-hour film, whatever that thing is. And I want to tell you something, that is one of the dumbest movies I have ever seen in my entire life. You say, why do you say that? Because my sister-in-law cried the entire time. She cries the entire time. She says, oh, Jim, isn't this a wonderful movie? I'm thinking you're crying. But i got to admit it, before long I was crying too. <laughs> when Matthew died, I am losing it. I'm thinking this is not fair. How did you do this to me? You set it up to love this quiet grandpa type guy, and then you, he kicks the bucket right there with the, <laughs> with the girl, and I'm, I am just bawling. But before that ever happened, I am telling you, when he gave her the dress, wow. Man, I was balling on that one too. <laughs> Two or three times during that thing, man, I'm just losing it. I mean, you think it was revival. I was at the altar. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I mean, I am just losing it. Now, I hate to admit this to you, but I'm telling the honest truth. Somebody came to the planet piano and started playing Anna Green Gables' theme, I'd start crying. By walking through the store, all of a sudden, oh, there's Anna green cables. I mean, tears come to my eyes. Now, this is going to shock you, but I really want you to understand that. When that happens, that is not a spiritual experience. I'm not saying it's always wrong. I'm just saying it's not spiritual. But the music elicits a response. I uh, had a friend of mine who told me he went to one of these... Idea Day type things. And he said they had a session on music. He went just because he knew he wanted to see how far off and how out in left field they were. And he said one of the things they talked about was using non-lyrical um, secular music during an invitation because it made people cry. And they were pushing it you know what that's called listen that music you may say well there's nothing wrong with the music i'm telling you friends if it's musical manipulation it's going for the soul what i'm trying to say is soul is not spirit and one of the things i'm concerned about this generation is this they can't tell the difference if you go to the average college and career sing and they're they're you know requesting Hymns At the average, even independent Baptist church, they are all picking touchy-feely songs that, uh, I don't know, sometimes I just feel like, man, I don't know, is that thing spiritual or is that soulish? I remember several years ago, Daniel sent me an article from the Wall Street Journal on Adele, the British pop singer. This was back before I had even heard her name. And there was a certain song she had, and it was on the top of the list for an inordinate amount of time. I can't remember it, I looked the article up and I forgot the name of the thing. Shows you how much it impacted me. Uh, Anyway, and she had this thing on the top of the charts for who knows how long, and the Wall Street Journal did an article on physiologically why it was on the top of the charts. And they explained that, okay, this is what she do, and basically Saturday Night Live, again, I didn't know this, I'm just reading the article, Saturday Night Live did a skit where they played that song in a workspace and all the workers are crying as Adele sings her song. And basically, hey, they go through and say, now here's when she does this, this is what chemically is happening in your body. And when she does this, this is what is chemically happening in your body. And when she does this, this is what is chemically happening in your body. And Wall Street Journal explained why it was number one, based on your glands. Now, somebody could listen to that kind of saying. Oh, isn't that spiritual? No, it's not spiritual. It's soulish. You could get rid of the words and put Christian words, but it doesn't make it spiritual. So I'm just giving you food for thought. I can't answer every question. In fact, as a preacher, uh, uh, Daniel can ask the question. I mean, answer the questions, or Phil Gingri back there, he can answer them too. I'm just throwing the grenades. I'll let them clean it up. Okay, but anyway, soul and spirit, there it is. OK, now we've got to finish this thing up. So Spiritual songs, it's important to understand. God's a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit number two. And I won't take long on this one. They must worship him in truth. Does it pass the truth test? Years ago, well-known, well-known uh, Christian contemporary artist uh, at St. Louis when the um, Pope was going to be in St. Louis, she was scheduled, and I think she ended up going through with it, to sing before the Pope. Now, I want to ask you an honest question. I'm not trying to to be mean here tonight. I'm just trying to help help us understand something. Uh, Does that pass the truth test? And the answer is, no. If somebody claims to be a born-again Christian and sings before a theological system that has sent who knows how many people to hell, that doesn't pass the truth test. See, so, so you have to understand there, there's these Christian artists out here and thinking, oh, that doesn't pass the truth test. That doesn't work. Now, there's a lot we can say about that one. That one's pretty simple. If you know your Bible, that's pretty simple. So there's certain lyrics don't, that don't meet the truth test. Some of, the, some of the songs are fairly popular, and, 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 and it, it, it's like this. And, and you, might, you might think I'm nitpicking, but I'm just trying to get you to think. Years ago there was a song called People Need the Lord, Steve Green sang it, and, and uh, uh, it, it was a very emotional song. And I'm not saying every part a bad bit of it's wrong, but I, I noticed this theologically. It said people need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, people need the Lord. Now is that the emphasis of the Bible, that people need to get saved because their dreams are broken? And the answer is? No, it should be this, at the end of wicked sin, people need the Lord. <laughs> now, I realize that you think, oh, preacher, you're nitpicking, but I want, to, I want to, sometimes you need to think about, as a preacher of the gospel, when I get up, I don't preach to a bunch of room full of teenagers and say, teenagers, you've got a bunch of broken dreams. i am telling you what, Jesus is the answer. No, you're sinning. You're going to look at pornography. You're messing out with your girlfriend. You need Jesus. You're going to die in your sins and go to hell. So theology does matter. So the truth test. So there's other things I could say. I'm just trying to get us to think about it. So tonight, friends, my encouragement to you is simply this. To walk out, and if nothing else, walk out and say, you know what? Hmm. I believe music is moral, therefore it mandates discernment. It mandates discernment. Doesn't matter who you are in this room, if you believe that what the Bible is saying here, spiritual songs, that means there's not, there's fleshly songs and there's soulish songs, it mandates discernment. And I need to be discerning. Now, if that's all we've accomplished tonight, I would be thrilled. <laughs> because I believe that's what God wants from us. He's saying, I, you need to be discerning. Why? Because we have an enemy out there who's an unbelievable ma- masquerader and a counterfeiter, and you don't want to fall for his counterfeits. You want the real deal.